as I say, Marty has given me uh, free reign this evening. Um, and normally, I, I, as a preacher, I find that a complete nightmare. I'd rather just be told, this is the part of the Bible you have to speak on. Go away, read about it, and, and prepare a sermon. Um, but when you have the whole thing to pick from, it's kind of hard to know where to start, isn't it? But as I prayed this week, um, I, I don't really know how to explain it, but a, the, a clear idea um, of what I wanted to do came very strongly and very consistently. Um, and I'm a sinful man and I may have completely messed that up, but I went with it um, and I believe God has something to say to us this evening. So can I encourage you, um, if you have your Bible, um, if you did close it, to, to open it um, at page 1036 if you're using a church Bible. And let's pray and ask God to help us just now. Our Lord, we thank you that in your word you promise us that when your word goes out, it never is returned to you void. It never returns to you without accomplishing its purpose. And so, Lord, whether tonight we think that you may have something to say to us or whether we don't come with that expectation, we pray now that you would indeed come by your Holy Spirit and speak to us through your word as it is read and preached. Lord, would you have your way with each one of us and speak to us according to your will, for Jesus' sake. Amen. This past uh, Tuesday of this week was uh, a big day for a number of people. It was a big day for me particularly um, for two reasons. Firstly, it was the day that I returned to work after a few months off. But it was also the day on which I got my second negative lateral flow test after a bout of COVID. So it was Freedom Day. I was finally allowed out of the house and finally allowed to go out and do things again. But much more importantly than that, it was International Women's Day. I'm sure that didn't escape your attention. Um, and I was going to say that's a big day for half the population, but I suppose really it should be a big day um, for everybody if you choose to celebrate it. It's a day that started off in the early 1900s. It was an initiative by women to secure better conditions, particularly at work. Now today, it's so much broader than that. It highlights inequality that still does remain in the workplace, whether that's the pay gap between the genders or not flexible enough working arrangements for mothers, differences in opportunities for study or work for women, sexism, harassment, issues of women feeling safe, violence against women, and a whole raft of other things. And as a man with a wife and three daughters, I suppose I have a special interest. I would like my daughters to grow up um, with equal opportunities, with equal rights, equal pay, and, and all that sort of thing. But actually, I think the fact that International Women's Day still exists over 100 days later in 2022 tells us, I think, that maybe we're not so advanced and sophisticated as we think we are. In our generation, I think generally, um, not just in women's rights, but generally we believe the lie that things are you know, kind of getting better. We believe that through diplomacy, uh, we live in a more peaceful world. We don't live in the world of war anymore. You know, we're past that, we're better than that. Democracy and politics are our savior until something like the war in Ukraine happens. Perhaps Europe hasn't advanced to the point of not needing war anymore. Maybe we've just advanced to the point actually where we can cause more devastation more quickly. We believe in, in a more equal society and we think we live in a more equal society than we used to. And maybe to a certain extent that's true. 
You know, not like the bad old days in other parts of the world where communism ruled. You know, the theory wasn't that bad, but it was all corrupt and led by corrupt people, and there was even more inequality and corruption than ever. But we live in a democracy where people are held to account, don't we? Except that we discovered about six months ago that many of our MPs have second jobs with big corporations that are paying them hundreds of thousands of pounds when they're meant to be working for us. And what are those corporations exactly getting in return for their money? Are they influencing votes? Are they influencing policy? I obviously couldn't possibly comment on such a possibility. But in 2022, in our advanced, modern, technological, democratic, accountable society, where we do things the right way, we're led by science and all the rest of it, we see evidence of behavior, some of which might be within the rules technically, but which stinks of corruption. Not as advanced as we think. Inequality, rich people getting richer, poor people getting poorer and struggling. Still in 2022, about a fifth of the world's population lives in poverty. And about half of those, which by the way is nearly 700 million people, live in extreme poverty, which is less than $1.92 or something, which is about £1.50 per day. And sadly, to go back to the issue of women's rights, a lot of those trends are echoed as well. Things have come a long way since International Women's Day began in the early 1900s. You know, there are more working rights and voting rights. Civil servant women no longer have to quit when they have a child and all that sort of thing. But in some ways, I think things are still pretty poor. There are still issues around employment. I know women who have left their job after having a baby because the, the conditions to go back just weren't right. Still a lack of women in various academic disciplines, especially sciences where I came from. There were all sorts of initiatives to try and get more women involved, but generally it didn't work. Still a pay gap, still sexist remarks made, still hollering and wolf whistling in the streets, still violence against women, still domestic violence an issue. And I could go on. We think that we're getting better, but are we? The kidnap and murder and rape of Sarah Everard in London nearly exactly a year ago, it, it shocked us. I'm not sure if it should have shocked us. Or what about the young teacher, Ashleen Murphy, in Tullamore earlier this year? But it's widespread. It was announced this week that 12 women have died in Northern Ireland since the start of the pandemic because of domestic violence. These quite often don't appear in the news simply to protect the identity of children involved, but it's on our doorstep. Women's Aid reported a rise of, of a third in the numbers of women reaching out of, to them because of domestic abuse during COVID, and that's in Northern Ireland. In 2017, Northern Ireland had the highest rates of murder by a partner in the whole of Europe per head of population. Recently, I was speaking to a friend of mine um, who went out for a run in Ballynur, which is where I live. Now, to put this in context, nothing happens in Ballynur. It's a place where nothing happens. The most exciting thing to do in Ballynur used to be to watch the cars go to Larne, but then they built a bypass, so you can't even do that anymore. Nothing happens. But she had done um, Couch to 5K, I think. She went running and she ran either with her husband or with her dad, who's quite a fit guy. 
but she decided to take a run one day in Ballinure in broad daylight. She said three vans that drove past honked their horn at her, with two of them winding down their window to shout something at her, but she didn't catch. And the men who were resurfacing the road just down, sort of at the end of the street that I live, made comments as she went past. I don't think we realize it, many of us, and particularly maybe men, but women around us face so much of this every day. People staring, people making comments, and our society says it cares, but most of what it does is just virtue signaling. You know, big corporations, they only have their own interests in mind, so they want to be seen to be doing something. So we get a female Doctor Who. They give us women commentators and pundits on every football game that you watch now. Those things may well be good. I can't comment on the Doctor Who one because I have no interest. But nobody stands and calls out the real issues, the underlying issues. No one from a big corporation will highlight the effect of porn on our society's attitude towards women. The fact that boys and increasingly girls are watching it from a young age where women look a certain way, behave a certain way, do whatever the man wants, are objectified, treated roughly, always willing, always submissive. No one's highlighting the fact that so many people are watching this. No one is highlighting the hypersexualization of our culture because, you know, whatever people watch in their own home, you know, that's fine, that's private. We'll give you a female Doctor Who or a, a pundit on a sports game, but we'll remain quiet about the exploitation of women and the things that are teaching our young people about the value of women. Occasionally somebody gets caught, somebody like Harvey Weinstein, and, and that's rightly highlighted and condemned. But the underlying culture, it just goes on. Our government says it's committed to cracking down on gender-based violence. Sounds good. Joe Biden chose a woman as his running mate for the presidency of America. Brilliant, isn't it? We have a female vice president of America. Except that when he came to office, he immediately withdrew troops from Afghanistan. And our government went along with it. And, and we can debate all day about whether they should have been there in the first place or anything like that. But we do know that when we withdrew them, the fact is we handed the keys right back to the Taliban, who took away the rights of millions of women. Girls who'd been at school one day, barely permitted out of the house the next day. An education lost. They've lost their freedom. And do our leaders really care? You'd be forgiven for wondering what any of this has to do with the parable of the sower. But I suppose as Christians, we kind of know, don't we, that this side of eternity, the problem isn't going to be completely solved. It's a direct consequence of the fall. God said to the man and to the woman, he said to her, you know, your desire will be for your husband and he will overrule you by force. It's a, it's a sign of conflict, isn't it? It's a description of conflict. But I can't help but read portions of the Bible like the one we did tonight and think to myself, wow. Jesus really treated women differently. And if we are his followers, then I, then I think we have a responsibility to step up to the plate here. And the church needs to be a place where women are respected, where they're valued, where women's discipleship is valued every bit as much as men's, where we speak up for women, where we speak out against injustice, and where women have their own place to speak up. You might say to me, John, that, that's maybe a little bit extreme. That's not why the church exists. That's not our main purpose. And maybe not primarily. 
But if we're following in the footsteps of Jesus, then this will be reflected in how we treat one another. In Christ's kingdom, there's no male or female, we're told, and we should look like that. We need to be people who speak up. This may lead to conflict with others. Um, I have a friend who works for a, a, a woman's charity, and you know sometimes she invites me along to events, and it's you know it's things like you know I'm holding a rally um, to raise awareness about the fact that some women don't feel they can walk home safely at night in Belfast, and I'm thinking yes, I'll be there with bells on, and the next week she's organising a rally maybe to um, protest against the lack of abortion services here for women. I say, sorry, I, I, can't, I can't make it that night. It will lead to conflict, but nonetheless, the church needs to be a place where the rights of women are spoken up for, even if some people disagree with us exactly about what that looks like. Men, we need to step up. If you hear somebody making a, a comment that's inappropriate, if you consume pornography, if you know you objectify women, We've got to do something about that. I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I'm saying it to call you to repent, to come to Jesus, to find forgiveness, to find help of a a, a Christian friend for these things and to follow Jesus' lead in how you think and and treat women. Ladies, I can't let you off the hook here either. Your conversations about other women the people you follow on Instagram who you either idolize and therefore devalue yourself by comparing yourself to them or maybe those other women you criticize. It's part of the problem. I I saw a story a couple of years ago. It was about an Australian um, breakfast TV show and it was co-anchored by a man and a woman. And they did this wee experiment um, where the man wore the same suit every day for a year. He changed his shirt and tie and stuff so he looked different, but he wore the same suit every day for a year and nobody noticed. Nobody wrote in, nobody called, nobody emailed, nobody noticed. And at the end of that year, the woman wore the same outfit two days in a row. And hundreds of people wrote in. Hundreds upon hundreds of people complaining, being really nasty, does she not have something else to wear, all the rest of it. But the really depressing thing, and this is a true story, the really depressing thing about it is that 90-something percent of those letters were written by women against their fellow women. Ladies, don't fall into the trap. Maybe the problem was created by men. Maybe it was, I don't know. But don't fall into the trap. Jesus calls us to something better. (sighs) Now, what started as an aside at the start of my sermon ended up taking up quite a lot more room than I thought it would. But I make no apology for it. Jesus was a champion for women, and he calls us to stand up for women too. But this part of the Bible doesn't just tell us about Jesus' attitude to women. It does do that, but it does much more. The second thing it does is that it reminds us that in his ministry, Jesus turns the world upside down. In his ministry, Jesus turns the world upside down. Now, we've already thought a wee bit about this in that Jesus has these women following him and providing for him. That's not normal. Not many rabbis at the time, I imagine, would have had female disciples. Not many would have had women bankrolling their operation. I can't imagine many would have welcomed anybody associated with Herod. Herod probably grew up in a Jewish background, but he was in bed with the Romans who were hated. And then we have the, the sort of the main part of our reading tonight, that this sinful woman at the house of Simon the Pharisee. From Simon's point of view, you know, these events are probably really quite different. 
you know, he's, he's a Pharisee, so he knows his Bible, he knows his Old Testament, he lives by those ethics. In fact, he does it to, to the extreme. We know that the Pharisees made up hundreds upon hundreds of extra rules in addition to what was in the Old Testament. And they prided themselves on how good they were, basically. Now, he obviously had heard about Jesus, and we've jumped into the middle of Luke's gospel tonight, but if you read through Luke's gospel, you'll see that the word about Jesus was filtering out all around Judea. He's popular. He, all, all, all the whispers are going on about him. Have you, have you heard about this Jesus person? So Simon obviously wants to suss him out, maybe to test him out, maybe get some wisdom from him to see if he's all he's cooked up to be. And Simon probably thinks he's already quite good, so I wonder if I can learn something from this man or get something from this man to, to make my CV even more impressive. That's where he's coming from. What about the disciples? Well, we don't know exactly what they were thinking about this, but given that the disciples usually got these things wrong, they probably thought that Jesus was trying to win over this Pharisee by an intelligent argument because this Pharisee, yes, he's a man who knew the scriptures. Do you remember what Jesus did on the way to Emmaus after he rose again? You know, he, he talked through the whole Old Testament and how they pointed to him to prove himself. Maybe he was going to try something like that. If he was going to build his kingdom, if he was going to restore Israel, well then he, he would need people like the Pharisees on board, wouldn't he? But Jesus turns all of these expectations upside down. For others, the woman doesn't even appear in the equation. But to Jesus, she is the most important person in the room. Simon doesn't get it at all. If he were a prophet, he would know who's touching him, a sinner. Other people in the room, they don't get it either. They say, who is this who even forgives sins? Yes, that is a, an exclamation that they're amazed, but. The, I mean, they clearly just didn't expect that from Jesus. They don't really know why he has come to earth. They've heard lots about him. They've heard about what he's done, the miracles, the teaching, and they still don't get that he has come into the world to save sinners. They think that he's at the house of this Pharisee to talk religion, to have intelligent conversation, to convince the Pharisee he's a prophet, maybe to get the support of this Pharisee but they don't get that he came into the world to save sinners, to say, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you. They don't get that he's going to want to speak to this woman of all people. But salvation doesn't happen the way they expect. It doesn't happen by works. It doesn't happen by clever argument. It doesn't happen by having a good CV or living a good life. It doesn't happen by having the right people on board. It happens when God works in a person's heart so that they realize their life isn't right and they turn to Jesus as the one who saves them. That's what happens to this woman. She sees her sin for what it is, maybe for the first time in her life. And as she sees her sin, she counts its cost and she cries. And yet she comes to Jesus as the one who can set her free from it. She's ready to live a different life now a life that serves Jesus, so she washes his feet to show that you know, she's gonna serve him now. She kisses his feet because she loves him, because she realizes what he will do for her. We were singing, my chains are gone, I've been set free. That's what the kisses and the tears are about. 
And then she anoints him with perfume. Anointing is something that the Israelites did to their kings. She's acknowledging that Jesus is her king and her master. She's going to live his way now. And that's how Jesus works, that's his way. Not to bring people who think they're doing okay into his kingdom, but to bring in those who know that they don't have it together and who know that they're sinners. That's what happens with this woman. It's what happened with the woman at the well. It's what happened with blind Bartimaeus. He knew Jesus was passing and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people say to Bartimaeus, what do they say? Shush, give over out of the way. He doesn't want to bother with you. But he shouts louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops and he says, call that man to me. And he heals him. And Bartimaeus becomes his disciple. Zacchaeus, the, the dreaded and hated tax collector, has to hide up a tree. Doesn't even want to go into the crowd. Jesus stops at the bottom of the tree, calls him down, and turns his life around. Jesus turns the world upside down because against all of our instinct, all of our logic, and all of our reason, he reaches out to people who just don't cut it. People who are sinners. I wonder if you're here tonight and that's you. You think you're not good enough? You think you're not the right kind of person to be following Jesus? You know, the other people that you know who follow Jesus, well, well they know more about the Bible than you do. They, they know way more about it. They, they live better lives. You think, I couldn't do that. If that's you tonight, then you have to know that Jesus thinks you're the most important person in the room right now. Not because you deserve it, but because he is full of grace and mercy and you are exactly who he came to earth to save, just like the woman who washed his feet. Maybe you know the weight of your sin. You could cry about it. You want to be set free from it. But then you need to put your trust in Jesus and hear him say, like he said to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. So this part of the Bible doesn't just tell us something about how we should treat women, although it does do that. It doesn't just tell us that Jesus turns the world upside down and he draws people to himself that we would hardly expect, though it does do that. But this part of the Bible actually gets to the core of what it is and what it looks like to be a Christian, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. This part of the Bible gets us to the core of what it is to be a Christian. Because it doesn't just deal with how to become a follower of Jesus, it deals with how we live as Christians and it does that when we realize that we are these women. We are these women and I'll tell you what I mean by that. We are Mary Magdalene. She had demons cast out of her, we, we may never have that happened to us, but we battle spiritual forces too, don't we? Paul says to the Ephesians, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We have an enemy. The devil tempts us. He lures us into sin. Our Christian life is described by the Bible as spiritual warfare. We are Joanna, the wife of Chusa. 
Because we know people, don't we? We have people in our families. We work with people who don't know Jesus, who are quite opposed to the whole idea. People who don't understand why we want to come to church or anything like that. And many of us in this part of the world, maybe not all of us, but many of us have the luxury of being able to spend our money on plenty of things that aren't Christ. And we get to make that choice with our money. We are those women who funded that operation. And we are the sinful woman in Pharisee's house, in the Pharisee's house. We don't maybe think of ourselves that way, but if we're honest, even since we became Christians, we've sinned, we, we know that. And maybe sometimes that sin really gets to us, really weighs us down, really grieves us. Because we thought we'd have changed more by now than we failed again. But we can come to Jesus no other way than this woman, recognizing our sin, yes, but ready to go again ready to serve him, ready to anoint him and crown him as king of our lives, ready to love him because he forgives us. As we do that, as we come to him, admitting our sin and looking to him to forgiveness, we fall all the more in love with him. We could kiss him because he sets us free. We're new creations, no matter how we feel we're getting on. And we don't ever graduate from this. Yes, hopefully we do change. And yes, hopefully we do live differently. But on this side of eternity, we'll never get to the destination that we want to. And it's not that we become Christians again and again or anything like that. That happened once and it's done. You are a new creation. But we continue to come to Jesus the same way. We've still let him down. We've still sinned. We're still suffering the consequences of our sin, perhaps. But we come to him each day, not pretending we're better than we are, but admitting our sin, throwing ourselves on his mercy, which is never ending, and joyfully receiving forgiveness, ready to serve him again. If we want to live gospel-centered lives, if we want to live the way that Jesus calls us to, then I think this is the only way. But we are tempted to be like the Pharisee. We, we like to think that we're not Pharisees, but we are very tempted to live that way and base our worth as a Christian on how well we're doing, maybe in our devotional life, how close to God we feel right now. If somebody asked you, how, how's things going in your spiritual life at the minute? I would be amazed if at least 99% of the people in this room wouldn't answer about how Bible reading and prayer's been going lately. Or maybe that we've missed church a few times this month, just the way things worked out, you know, and so I'm gonna make more of an effort. But that's not the measure of how things are going in your spiritual life. These are great things, we'll, we'll see that in a moment. They're important, they will help us grow and mature. But the most important aspect of our spiritual life is whether we're forgiven. That's it. It's the only thing that really matters. So whether you, you come to Christ for the first time or for the thousandth time, we come repenting of our sins, ready to serve him and love him again. Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians 3, 3, are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? In other words, what God started by the spirit, what, what God did in you when you became a Christian, 
Are you going to try and keep that going and even finish it by human effort? Really? Are you mad? I feel that very deeply because it's what I am always tempted to do. But it's not the way. Jesus told the story in Luke chapter 18 of a Pharisee who went into the temple to pray. And he said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other people. (laughs) I'm not like them people who sin. You know, I give you a tenth of everything I earn. I fast twice a week. Then this tax collector comes in. He knows he's a sinner. He can't even bring himself to look up. But he beats his breast and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, you know what? It's the tax collector who goes home forgiven. It's the only way to come to God. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the cathedral in Wittenberg at the start of the Reformation, do you know what his first thesis was? It was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. There were some in the church at that time who were teaching that, you know, you repented at the start of your journey, but then you kind of built up good works after that or or you bought indulgences or whatever it was and you kind of, you know, credited your account that way. But it's not the way. It's a life of repentance. But when we don't do this, when we see repentance as something we did once a long time ago and, and now we measure our faith by an activity like going to church or reading the Bible or whatever, well, then one of two things happens. Less often, but it does happen we become proud like the Pharisee. Lord, thank you, that's going really well. And yes, it's great when Bible reading and prayer and all those things are going well, but we can become proud. Thank you that I'm not like them. But more than likely, if we're a bit more humble than that, we realize that we can never live up to our own expectations of reading the Bible every day, praying in every situation, never missing something at church, whatever way we measure it. We give ourselves these horrendous expectations and so we live under the burden and strain of horrendous pressure to do better. And all that happens is you just end up feeling really guilty. We are the woman in this story. Do you ever come away from a church service thinking, you know, I'm really glad I was there. You know, the the gospel was really preached this morning. I hope that somebody in there, you know, who didn't know Jesus now knows Jesus and gave their life to him. But then you think about it a bit more and you say to yourself, well, there wasn't really much in it for me. You know, I, I became a Christian a long time ago. I admit that I've come out of services doing that because it's not just about how we come to faith. It's also about how we live. You see, if we, if we think that we come out of one, a service like that and we think that we haven't got anything, then we miss the point. It's not just about how we come to faith. It's also about how we live by faith. It's about how we face whatever we're facing in our lives. We make the mistake all the time, maybe subconsciously, of thinking that the gospel, the thing that saved us, has nothing really to do with the situation we're facing in the here and now. We think that the gospel says our sins are forgiven and that means that one day away in the future, yes, that means I'll get to go to heaven and and I'll be in freedom and joy with Jesus forever. And that is absolutely right. But somehow we believe in our minds and in our hearts that in between those times, we just struggle. You know, we kind of muster up a prayer that God would be with us. 
but that's about it. And he will be with us, but we'll face these things even better if we realize actually that they're connected to the gospel. If we live in a way that constantly comes to Jesus, confessing sin, throwing ourselves on his mercy, the fact that we're forgiven people helps us in the tough things in life. You probably know the old song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's not that those things of earth, those struggles go away, they don't, but they can get dimmer when we look to the gospel, when we look to Jesus. They're still there. Marty mentioned this morning about the the Philippian jailer and coming to faith and having that joy in his life. But you know, he probably had to go back to work the next day and he had to go back into the prison and deal with the fallout after, you know, what had happened and deal with inmates fighting with one another and whatever else he had to do in his job. The woman in this story, she had to go back to her life. If she was a prostitute or an adulterer, it's very possible that she had multiple children, dad's not around, struggling financially to deal with all of that. The things in your life that are in your life will still be there even when you look to Jesus. But I loved what Marty said this morning so much, I wrote it down, about the jailer. He still had a hard life, but he faced it carrying in his pocket an unshakable joy. We walk into life with unshakable joy in our pockets. That hospital appointment next week where you might get bad news, do you know it's still there? You're still going to worry about it because you're a human being. You might get bad news that might devastate you because you're a human being, that's natural. But the gospel reminds you that even if the news is the absolute worst, you're going to live. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The assignment that didn't go as well as you had hoped, you might still be disappointed by that, but the gospel reminds you that your worth is not based on your academic achievements, but by the Lord of all who died for you. That crushing depression that you have and, and the low self-esteem, well, the gospel won't make that go away and, and you know, it won't remove the need for you to go to a professional to get help with that. But the gospel puts it all into perspective because the gospel tells you that the God who knows everything about you, all of your flaws that you can't stop thinking about, all of your sins, even the ones you don't know about and even the ones you haven't committed yet, That God chose you in Christ before the world began. He's loved you with an everlasting love and brought you into his family to give you a reward that you can't even imagine. Life in his presence forever. He thinks you're worth dying for, even if you don't just now. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We still face hardships, but we carry around with us that unshakable joy. And that is, finally and very briefly, I promise, what the parable of the sower, I think, is all about in this context. We tend to think about this parable as the word of God going out to people who haven't heard it before, and and we think about those different responses that that it gets, and, and yeah, it is about that. 
And we tend to think, you know, because we're the Christians, we're the ones growing in the good soil. But if the seed is the word of God, the gospel, and if that's how we continue to come to Christ, yes, the first time, but also every time after that, then the parable of the sower speaks to us too. As the gospel is sown, as the word of God is preached or read at home or whatever it is, a number of things can happen. We are in a spiritual war and Satan will try to come and snatch the word away from us. The sun will scorch us. We will be tested. We, we might be tempted to give up, to fall away. Things on this earth will try to choke us like thorns choke out healthy crops. Things will compete for our attention. We'll be tempted to pursue our career or whatever it is rather than Jesus. We'll be tempted to go after things the world can offer rather than him. But it's our job to cultivate good soil. It's my job and Marty's job to keep preaching the gospel. It's my job and it's your job to live out the gospel. That might be, I don't know, taking notes at church. Maybe it's listening to our podcast later in the week. Making a conscious effort in some way so that the devil doesn't snatch away what you've heard in the word of God. Maybe it's making a point of preaching the gospel to yourself every morning. Maybe it's making prayer and Bible reading a habit. And again, I stress that doesn't save you, but it will point you to the gospel and help keep earthly things in perspective. And at the very end of this parable, there is a promise, not a nice promise. It's a promise that things won't be easy. See what it says right at the end there of what we read in chapter eight and verse 15. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Those words at the end there, by persevering or by patience or by remaining steadfast or whatever translation you want to use, tells us that it won't be easy. Our patience is gonna be tested. We're going to have to persevere. We're going to have to stand steadfast and firm in the midst of difficulty. But if we do stick to the word and to the gospel, we will grow. It seems a long way since we were talking about Jesus as a champion for women, and yet he really is. And that's just one example of how Jesus turns the world upside down by not doing what we expect, but by drawing near and calling those to him who we would never think of. He calls not on those who think they're good enough, but those who know they're not. That's what being saved is, to recognize our sin, to turn to Jesus for forgiveness and and to receive it with joy, ready to serve and follow him. And that's what living out the Christian life is too, despite our instinct to measure how well we're doing in other ways. We need to cultivate that in our lives, living by the gospel every day, because that is how we grow. It always has been, and it always will be, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we do thank you for your word and we thank you for the good news of the gospel. That those who deserved at least, while we were still your enemies, can come into your kingdom because at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Lord, we thank you 
for that good news. Lord, we thank you for the time and hour we received it if we are followers of you. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And yet that grace which saved us is also the grace which leads us on. So Lord, help us. Help us to see more and more clearly each day who Jesus is. Help us to see what he has done for us. And help us to live that life of repentance, turning away from our sin and from the world, grieving our sin, but receiving with joy the forgiveness and life and joy and peace that are ours in Christ. Amen.